we went to the animal conservatory and, and uh we had uh, we had a head count problem coming back and we all were hypothesizing about which animal had eaten who This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeShip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the latest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 195 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. Coraline Ada Emke. Coffee, 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 coffee. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Neil Ford. Hello. Uh, Neil, we haven't had you on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I work at ThoughtWorks as uh, we're an international consultancy that some of you may have heard of. We're pretty well known in the Ruby uh, community in the kind of intersection of enterprise stuff and uh, Ruby. Uh, my role at ThoughtWorks, I've been there, I'll actually will have been there 10 years in April because I've just come due for my three-month paid sabbatical, which I'm very excited about, which is coming up in May, June, July this year. Uh, and my role at ThoughtWorks is typically as an architect or tech lead on projects, although I have sort of an unusual role at ThoughtWorks, because I also travel and speak at a lot of conferences. I've spoken at uh, RailsConf. I did a keynote at RailsConf in 2010 and uh, a bunch of other Ruby-related events. Uh, and I'm also a member of the ThoughtWorks Technology Advisory Board, and we're the ones who create the ThoughtWorks Technology Radar, which, of course, is, I think, the ostensible topic of the podcast today. Yes. I'm really excited. Do you want to kind of explain the idea behind the technology radar for ThoughtWorks? 
Sure. And I'll actually give you an idea of where it came from, because this was not some sort of, you know, strategic master plan that we hatched in a, a smoke filled room at some point to get a lot of uh, web impressions. It actually started out as so this, there's this group within ThoughtWorks called the Technology Advisory Board. It's a group that the CTO, Rebecca Parsons, created because she's she wants to be very proactive about technology choices within ThoughtWorks and the way that we guide our clients to do things. And Ruby is actually a good example of that because we were really early proponents of Ruby on Rails in the enterprise and the places where it made sense. And so we came out very early and were very uh, vocal about doing that. So that's an example of the kind of technological proactivity we like to have. And so she created this group of working technologists pulled from ThoughtWorks offices all over the world. We're in about 14 countries now, so a couple of people from each major region. So it's about 30 people or so that make up this technology advisory board. And uh, we have a phone call every couple of weeks where we get together and talk about all things tech at ThoughtWorks. But twice a year, we have a face-to-face meeting where we have much more serious uh, conversations. And part of those face-to-face meetings, it's inevitable when you get a group of geeks as part of their day job, when you get them together on a very sparse, semi-regular basis, it's going to turn into at least a partial geek fest of, you know, oh, you got to see this cool thing that we did here, and oh, you got to see this cool thing on this project. And so at some point, we kind of formalized that during our face-to-face meetings and then started inviting other people from ThoughtWorks within whatever office we were meeting in to kind of contribute and hear what we were talking about. And then one of my colleagues, Darren, came up with this really clever radar metaphor. And then we started publishing it in a white paper. Uh, that started in the late 2010, I think. And uh, since then, we released this thing twice a year. And we get press releases and a bunch of fanfare and other stuff uh, whenever we release one of these things. So that's the where this thing came from, and at least on the surface, what it is. Very cool. Now, one thing when I looked it up that really helped uh, was to be able to visualize it. So where can people get the technology radar? There, You can consume it in two different formats. If you go to thoughtworks.com, that's thought and works, all one word, dot com slash radar, you will see the latest interactive version. Uh, the latest version that came out was released. We kind of soft released it back in uh, mid-December because our la- our face-to-face meeting was in um, early uh, November last year, our most recent one. And we wanted to get it out just before Christmas, but we also wanted a marketing thing. So the official release of it was in mid-January, but that's the January radar. And if you go to thoughtworks.com slash radar, that's always the latest interactive version. You can also download a PDF from there. And for those of you who are looking at it, we're basically taking this radar metaphor. And it's actually a pretty deep metaphor. So we have it. We're a consulting company, so we feel compelled to break things into quadrants. So there are four quadrants on this thing. Techniques, uh, tools and frameworks, uh, languages and frameworks, uh, platforms and tools. So the four categories are techniques, tools, languages, frameworks and platforms. And within each one of those quadrants, we have blips that represent a particular technology that we're making some comment about. And so let me explain what the rings mean. There are four rings around our radar. The outermost ring around our radar is labeled as hold. 
And anything that we put in that hold ring basically means proceed with caution. So uh, when ThoughtWorks creates one of these radars, we're basically getting a bunch of opinionated technologists together, and we're trying to advise the world based on our experience of technologies you should either use or should stop using. And that hold ring is really the, we think you should stop using this technology, mostly because we have uh, alternatives that we would prefer for one reason or another. So, for example, uh, we put all of, of the soap stack and hold a while back because we think rest is a much better alternative for uh, most of the situations you find yourself in. Uh, we don't care much for enterprise service buses, so we've had enterprise service buses and hold in our radar for a while. But it's almost always because we're trying to suggest an alternative. We pick things that are kind of common best practices that we think are kind of stinky out in the world and put those things in hold to make a kind of a comment about them, to point people to what we think are more enlightened ways of looking at things. That's the only kind of semi-negative ring, and we specifically do not have an avoid category. We're trying to be really true to this radar metaphor, and, you know, radar is looking at things that are incoming in the near future. And we find that if you put an avoid ring on here, then this radar becomes, rather than a forward-looking exercise, it becomes a backwards-looking kind of recrimination about all the mistakes we've made in the past kind of document, which, while that's probably a fun exercise to go through, it's not very constructive for making decisions in the future. So we tend to try to say hold is the most negative we say about anything. The next ring in is called assess. These are all things that we think are interesting and we want to do more research and development on, but haven't actually built anything interesting in them yet. Trial means we have started building things interesting in them, and we actually have things in production using those technologies, and we like them for whatever reason or, or some variety of reasons. And then finally, things that make it into the innermost circle adopt are the kind of no-brainer things that we're basically saying, you know, this is clearly the technology leader in its space, and this is kind of a no-brainer that we think you should probably adopt this technology. So I'm curious, Neil, we have a perception of enterprise software development as sort of lagging behind the curve when it comes to adopting new technologies. How has that, what has your experience been with that? Is that, is that hold true or is that sort of a tired cliche? It's a little bit tired, but it's, uh, I think the gap is, is widening. It's a, it's a spectrum. So William Gibson, the science fiction author, has a great quote that says, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> I heard actually the best example I've ever heard of this quote not too long ago about uh, like, like eight months ago, India did elections. You know, they're the largest democracy in the world with like 750 million voter registered voters and they have real travel challenges within India. And so at least one of the candidates was making campaign appearances via a hologram, sort of like the Tupac hologram. And one of the things the hologram was promising people at these campaign events was indoor plumbing. And that's a clear indicator that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed when the hologram promises you indoor plumbing. Wow. Uh, but a lot of companies are in this situation, too, because a lot of big enterprises view software as just overhead. And it's just like the heating and AC system. It's like, well, everybody seems pretty comfortable. I'm not going to invest a lot of money in overhead. But you said a lot of other companies who are getting very interested in this continuous delivery metric called cycle time, which is a measure of engineering efficiency. How quickly can you get things from let's start working on it to get it running in production? This is the source of all this continuous deployment stuff. And so a lot of big enterprises are starting to look at that as a potential strategic advantage over their competitors. 
because if you're on a six week release cycle and you get your cycle time down to a couple of hours, all of a sudden you now have weaponized infrastructure and can start using that as a business advantage. So we're finding that the, the gap is actually widening between companies who are reacting to this kind of stuff much more aggressively and other companies who are just kind of sitting on their hands. So I think the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed, but that's across different industries too. So some industries are moving a lot faster toward adopting what we would consider kind of best practice kind of stuff than others. This is fascinating to me because, I mean, you know, one of the perennial questions in working with technology is, you know, is this, you know, when is a technology worth looking into? When is it worth playing with? When is it just something to keep an eye on? And I'm kind of, you know, in having uh, heard you describe this and, and read a little bit about it, I'm kind of shocked that it's it's not common to systematize this, you know, judging of, of new technologies. Well, we're we're trying to encourage people to do this. I've got a uh, I'm doing a conference talk at a lot of conferences I do now called Build Your Own Technology Radar, and I have a, on my blog as well. There there'll be a resource attached to this that on my blog at neilford.com. I have a blog called Build Your Own Technology Radar where we're actually encouraging people to build two different versions of this for themselves. One, as a kind of career guidance tool, because I find that way too many technologists are very tactical in their career decisions, not very strategic. You get distracted by a new shiny thing. It's like, ooh, that's cool, and you start investing your time in that. But one of the things I discovered kind of at my uh, hazard many years ago, uh, this is going to be kind of an embarrassing history lesson for me, but many, many years ago before I joined ThoughtWorks, I was the CTO of a training consulting company, uh, based here in Atlanta, and we did development in this platform called Clipper, which was DOS-based. And everything was great. We had like 20 people, and we had training classes, and we had projects that were going on in Clipper. And then all of a sudden, Windows came along, and all the Clipper work just stopped. And it made me realize two really important things from a career standpoint. One is, no matter how much you don't want it to, technology keeps marching on. Uh, when you signed up for a career in, in dealing with computers and programming computers, you also signed up for a lifelong course in continuing education. So you better get really efficient at that. But the other thing that more important lesson I learned was that when you're heavily invested in a technology, you're living in a technology bubble. And when that bubble starts collapsing, it's very difficult to tell from the inside that it's getting smaller. And this is particularly true if you're invested in a technology that's owned by a vendor, like, you know, a big giant company, because they will hide the fact that their bubble is starting to collapse. And so it made me realize you really need to be super proactive as a technologist to guard in your career against the thing that you've heavily invested in all of a sudden turning into a pumpkin because it's really hard to see that happening when you're inside that ecosystem. And very often, once you realize that, it's too late and you have to start scrambling to reskill yourself. So part of this radar exercise is a way to sit down and assess okay, what kind of technology stuff am I interested in really long-term and as a way to kind of shepherd your efforts to make sure you're getting the best bang for your buck for the kind of technology stuff you're playing with? I'm curious, you know, at ThoughtWorks, once a technology has been identified, do you provide any sort of resources for sort of getting people familiar with it, getting them on board and training them? 
No, because we're, this is mostly from us, something that's very reactive from our project. So when we build one of these for ThoughtWorks, we're actually harvesting stuff from all the projects that people have been working on. So for example, our next face-to-face meeting is going to be in London in March. And so before that happens, I'll gather together some of the projects here in Atlanta and get people's opinions about things. So I come to that meeting armed with things that we know have pretty, have worked pretty well. So the only thing that we really provide to the world is the name of the technology, and then we do a little paragraph write-up about why it's on our radar and why it is in the, the circle that it's in, and then people are left to their own devices as to how they end up consuming that. This technology radar has become a great resource for developers who are trying to get their company to move forward into new technology. As I was reading it just now, one thing that I noticed is that technologies sort of fall off the radar if they're not changing rings? Is that how it yep. works? That's that's exactly right. Uh, this is, again, kind of true to that radar metaphor, that blip. So we have a rule that says if a blip hasn't moved in two radars, then it automatically fades away. And so some people want to view our radar as kind of a life cycle assessment tool. So they look in this adopt ring and think, oh, that's all the cool stuff that ThoughtWorks is using. That's not true because we're trying to stay true to this radar metaphor, and we use a lot of technology, so it would be just a solid mass of blips if everything we ever used was there. So they do fade off if they haven't moved after two blips, and that's true no matter where they are. So the, the kind of normal course of events for uh, something is to start out and assess, and then move its way through trial, and make it into adopt, and then fade away after two radars if it hasn't moved, because we, we truly love whatever that technology is. And then it might not ever pop up again on our radar, or if it does, it pops up three years later in whole because we found a much better alternative to whatever those things are. But some things kind of move back and forth. So a, a great example of something that's kind of moved back and forth between assess and hold is the stuff that intentional software is doing. That's Charles Simonia's company. He was the guy who created Excel at Microsoft and he's been working for about a decade now on this really revolutionary kind of language workbench kind of platform called Intentional Software. And we keep getting enamored of the technological promise of this. And so we put it in assess, and then we actually touch it and try to do something with it. And it's very immature, so we put it back in hold. So things kind of sometimes jockey back and forth. But in general, things move in to adopt and then kind of fade away. But, like you said, some people use this as justification for we should use X in our company, which has really surprised us that anyone would value our opinion highly enough to make a case based on it. And so for people who want to make a case for it, or if you're curious to see if your favorite technology has ever appeared on our radar, when you go to our website, the thoughtworks.com slash radar, you will see on the right-hand side a radar A to Z that's everything that's ever been on our radar searchable. So, for example, if you go to Radar A to Z and search for Git, Git is something we really love within ThoughtWorks, and it faded away in Adopt years ago. But you can see, uh, if you look at that history for Git, you can see when it showed up on our radar and then the stages it went through before it finally faded into Adopt. So we're actually now pointing more and more people to the, the search function to, to see if something if we've ever made a comment about something either pro or con, to make a case about something. Are there any common characteristics you've identified for technologies that appeared to be really interesting, appeared to have potential, but ended up fading out into the hold or disappearing completely? Well, we find that places, uh, technology 
locations that have a lot of churn ends up getting a lot of things in assess that never make it into trial. So we went through this recently with JavaScript frameworks because, you know, they're like mushrooms after a rainstorm. Uh, they keep popping up and going away. We actually, so one of the things we do for every radar is call out themes that we've kind of seen across all the blips. And one of the themes that we called out then was churn in the JavaScript space. Because at the time, I think there were two common build and dependency management tools, and one was in the process of replacing the other one, and you needed all three of them to get something to work, and so there was just a lot of craziness in that space. We obviously have a lot more things in assess than trial because we have a pretty strong opinion about things that we think are good technologies, so things fall off a lot after assess. Once they've made it into trial, it's pretty common that they make it into adopt. But the things that probably the common characteristic across all of our things is we're obviously very invested in kind of agile software development and the engineering practices around continuous delivery. So we tend to prefer lightweight, a la carte kind of low ceremony tools versus really fancy, heavyweight kind of things. But that's not much of a criteria because I think most people are now leaning toward those kind of decision criteria. I'm kind of curious. I mean, it makes sense if something fades out in hold or fades out in adopt, but if it's under assess or something like that and it fades, what, what does that mean? I mean, in two cycles, it, means it, it, means- it, it, it didn't make it to trial. So that just means that we looked at it and it didn't live up to whatever promise we thought it might deliver to make it all the way to trial. And so it doesn't have to go into hold. Is that the deal? No, no, certainly not. Hold is very dis- distinctly. So assess might be, you know, a, so a good example, let's say a new JavaScript web framework comes out, looks really promising. Then we put it in assess. And then we realize that while it's really good for some kinds of applications, it's kind of poor for other kinds of applications. And it has kind of a sketchy testing story. We don't want to put it in hold because we're not actively telling people you shouldn't use this, but we're not going to advocate for it either. So we actually did this for Angular for a while because we actually the first version of this radar page was written in Angular. And then we actually backed away from it and made some comments on our radar about, you know, the suitability. Not every project is suitable for every kind of framework. And so we tried to look at that. So there's a kind of an implicit on our radar, you know, adopt for when it makes sense. So, you know, if we put something like reverse proxying and adopt, we're not suggesting that every project on Earth should use a reverse proxy. But. If you're in a situation where that's a handy thing, then this is the technology we recommend to do that with. So what if you adopt both Angular and Ember, for example? We do that all the time. We're not trying to pick the winner. We're trying to say these technologies have worked well on our portfolio of projects. So we have over 200 projects going worldwide at any given time. So I think that's one of the interesting things about our radar is because we are relatively big and we're very international. We're 14 different companies and we're 3,000-ish people worldwide now, a little more than that. We actually are talking about a wide swath of different kinds of projects and all the different, all the same engineering practices, but very different problem domains and different ecosystems. And so we have a kind of a broad view over technologies more so than somebody in a particular country or a particular technology stack. So one other question I have, and this is going to get a little bit more into where I'm at. So I'm a freelancer. I have five podcasts that I do every week. And so. You know, you can imagine that I hear about a lot of different technologies. Mm-hmm. So how do I pick the things that I'm going to put into assess or trial or adopt? You know, how, how do I make those decisions with the stuff that I'm seeing? 
Yep. So what I suggest that people do when I talk about building your own personal technology radar is you need a set of litmus tests. So here's an observation. So you're, this is the Ruby Rogues podcast. So let's say that everything new in the Ruby world stopped this instant. You could easily spend the rest of your life just looking at the cool stuff that's laying around in the Ruby ecosystem. So what that suggests is if you really need to assess technologies, you need to come up with a good filtering mechanism, a good set of litmus tests that you can apply to technologies to say, should I spend any more time looking at you or not? And actually, this radar thing is not a bad way to categorize things for, hmm, assess looks kind of promising. You know, I want to do a little more research on it. Trial looks very promising in that. It's both a cool technology and it looks good from a career standpoint. And then adopt, of course, is the things you really want to heavily invest in. This is a way to kind of think about the kinds of technologies that will drive your career forward. Because one of the things I realized was when uh, the Clipper world vanished and I realized that you really start need that started. I really started to uh, manage my technology portfolio is it's very similar to a financial portfolio. And if you make a living off of technology, those two things are very closely intertwined. And so what's the very first piece of advice that your financial portfolio guy tells you? Diversify. Diversify, of course. So you should do the same thing with your technology choices. So one of the things I suggest is pick a good kind of middle of the road, kind of no brainer. I know I'll be able to get work in this in the next five years kind of thing. JavaScript, HTML, CSS is probably one of those spaces right now. Certainly any major language platform like Ruby on Rails or Python or any of those are probably pretty safe in the, in the near term. But also think about some more far out kind of, you know, speculative investment kinds of things. Maybe an open source project or, you know, maybe you have a passion for doing podcasts and all of a sudden you get, you know, really super popular on iTunes. You become, you know, the podcast king of, of the universe for technology podcasts. That's a good example of you know chasing something that is not necessarily on the mainline path of your career but something that you're interested in doing and want to pursue and it may turn into something kind of cool the building this radar kind of thing is a way to kind of balance those things to think about you know where should i put my time and effort and kind of a way to get it all laid out together on one view and think about time spent versus reward versus just always kind of defaulting toward the stuff that's really the newest, coolest thing, which is my problem sometimes, problem slash opportunity. Uh, I, I need to be able to balance that, I find. I like that you emphasize to choose something that, one, you're interested in, two, that you personally want to pursue, and finally, that might turn into something cool. Because even if your podcast doesn't take off or your open source project is never downloaded, you've learned something. Absolutely. And the investment, I think, is the key thing there, not the outcome. The outcome might turn out to be something cool, but, you know, I think the, the time investment ends up being the more interesting thing. And it's really a way to marshal your time. You know, that's a really tricky thing. You know, you need to constantly be learning new things, but, you know, you probably need and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, you know, life in addition to technology stuff. And balancing those those concerns is really tough. So another thing that I realized is I need to get really efficient at learning and assessing new technology stuff to, to see if I need to spend more time looking into it. So a good example for a litmus test for me, because I'm really into kind of agile engineering, is testability. So I remember when Flex came out, Flex is like, oh, that's a kind of a cool looking thing. 
But one of the first questions I ask it is, how testable are you? And the, the story came back very anemic. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to wait and it, either until Flex's testing story gets really good or it dies. That'll be my decision point. And it died. And so now I never have to worry about Flex because I never spent any time looking at it because it didn't match my baseline criteria for this is what I should do to spend more time on it. And so that's actually a way that our radar helps individuals create their radar because presumably we've done uh, at least short-circuited some of this assessment phase to see what kinds of problems a particular technology is applicable to try to solve and can kind of short-circuit some of that research and development. Conferences are also great ways to kind of short-circuit that R&D phase because you can go and get an accelerated view of, you know, kind of what this technology does and it's what's good about it and also, more importantly, what some of its shortcomings are. So I used to work on uh, radar systems, and I, I love stretching metaphors out. Of course, one of the things uh, that comes up when you're talking about radar is the fact that, at least in a military situation, other people like to jam your radar. It seems to me that vendors tend to like to jam technology radars. Is that something that you've experienced? Oh, sure. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about before, that if you're living in a technology bubble and it starts collapsing, the vendor will absolutely try to keep that fact from you because they want to try to keep the life support system going as long as they can for technology. So I think it's important to – this is less true for open source technologies, but it's also a little bit true there because, I mean, so you're always being marketed at. So, you know, let's say you discover a great new web framework, Bob's Web Framework. You go and look at Bob's page, and it's got all these cool things on there. It doesn't say at the bottom of the page oh, with an asterisk, oh, by the way, Bob's web framework really sucks at these three things you're going to need critically because <laughs> they're marketing to you. So, I mean, even open source projects are trying to keep, you know, the, the their weaker points away from you. So I think. I think that's just a kind of natural tendency for people who are trying to get you excited about a technology and, you know, and start investing your time and effort into it. Right. It's, and and they're, they're solving their, I mean, their own problems and they might not have run into those weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they have their own bias about, you know, what, what's good and what's bad. And so the tricky thing is to kind of evaluate those biases. So one of the things I always do anytime I'm trying to assess a brand new kind of technology, like for example, if I was trying to pick a new JavaScript front end framework or something, I would try to find what the candidates were that kind of met my criteria. But then, so one of the, the cool things that most commercial products have, even though it's mostly used for evil, is the feature matrix that tells you how this weighs up against all of its inferior competitors. I tend to build a feature matrix, too, when I'm trying to evaluate a technology and try to put the good, the bad, and the ugly on there. And so, for example, I might have a category in there about how does this interact with the authentication authorization service I know I'm going to have to use with it. I'm never going to find that on Bob's main web page, and I probably won't be able to find it by research, and so I'll do a little spike project so I can understand how that works. But I think it's really important before you adopt a technology broadly to understand both the good parts and the, the weaknesses of it, because the weaknesses are the really hard things to find. It's easy to find the strong points because everybody will broadcast those things. It's the, the weaker points of it that you have to kind of poke around and, and dig up sometimes. Right. So you kind of keep a, a list in your head of areas where you've, you've seen weak points or, or that 
might be risky in your next project? Is that how you? Yep, those are exactly the, those litmus tests that I try to apply to technologies when I start to look at a new technology. So testability is one of the things for me. Integratability, how what does that integrate with the other stuff that I'm looking at? You know, I may get really enamored by Erlang or something like that, but if I'm in a Ruby stack, then it's going to be really hard to get those things to play nice together. So, you know, maybe I look at the things that enamor me about Erlang, which is all the functional stuff, and see if I can apply that to the stack that I'm in right now and still get some of the goodness without taking on a lot of extra accidental complexity to be able to leverage whatever that technology is. Right. Uh, effective learnability is something that I look at too because, again, I'm, I'm trying to maximize my learning time to make that as efficient as I possibly can. So I'm a big fan if you're trying to learn some new, fairly complex thing is try to enlist more people, get like a little study group together and do like brown bag lunches and that sort of stuff. That helps both socialize the learning and it keeps a little bit of pressure on you to keep coming back and pursuing it. And it also helps to get you out of sticky situations where you can't figure out something, you know, something odd is going on. It's a way to, to kind of unstick you from those things. Hmm. Wow, those are some useful suggestions. I have a question. In the technology radar, is there a consideration toward whether you're going to be able to hire people who understand this technology? We're not concerned about that on our radar. We're mostly just concerned with technical efficacy of it solves a particular problem well. So we're big advocates of what other people view as kind of scary, complex things like uh, closure and, and scala and things like that. But um, right. this is actually one of my giant pet peeves in the technology world. Only in the software world is it's too hard considered a legitimate reason not to do things. You know what's hard? Open heart surgery is hard. And if people had the attitude that programmers had, we wouldn't have open heart surgery because like, ah, that's just too hard. People died when we started trying to do that, so we should stop doing that. We're big believers that professionals should uh, suck it up and learn things that they should learn. Now, having said that, there are a lot of things that are enormously accidentally complex out in the world for no good reason. So uh, you have to be careful to, to marshal your learning resources effectively. I know there are some companies here who are like, well, we don't want to adopt Scala because we won't be able to hire Scala developers. And yet, it seems to me that all the really good Java developers would love to learn Scala, mm. but pretty soon you won't be able to hire a good Java developer. Exactly. Well, that's the that's a, a similar thing to, uh, there's a kind of an old trope that says, uh, what if we send all of our developers to training and they end up leaving? It's like, what if we never send them to training and they end up staying? Exactly. Which is worse. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we don't fear technology. We try to apply it where it makes sense. So we also try not to get too fanboyish about technology, which we, we suffer sometimes from, from that, just like all technologists do. But uh, we try to be very pragmatic about it. And uh, certainly as a group, the tab tries to be extremely pragmatic about stuff we put on the radar and, and try to avoid fanboyism as much as possible. At ThoughtWorks, uh, when you do adopt these new technologies, do you pay developers to learn them? Well, we pay them to do development. <laughs> we don't While pay them to Yeah, I mean, it's... Like I say, most of the stuff on our radar are things that people have already learned on projects. So we're, we're kind of harvesting the results of that. I mean, we do, we will occasionally do training classes and that sort of stuff within ThoughtWorks, but we, like most technologists, we, we're very kind of self-starter in terms of new technologies. Most of the people that work at ThoughtWorks 
the technologists are very kind of keen to play with new stuff anyway and tend to do a lot of that on their own time. And of course, ThoughtWorks as a company is, is well known for open sourcing tons and tons of, of the, the goodies that we created in our spare time in the past. So cruise control, the original cruise control was ours and in unit and selenium and, uh, the original, uh, cruise control for uh, Ruby cruise control RB was on ThoughtWorks open source project. So we tend to be pretty proactive as technologists. That's not to say that if we went into a situation where, you know, some sort of advanced geocoding or something like that, we wouldn't, uh, you know, spawn a training class for people who are working on that. But in general, we're not trying to match. We're not even trying to match the things on Adopt to say that, you know, all future ThoughtWorks projects shall use this. We very much trust the people on the ground to make decisions on a case-by-case basis for projects. Kind of a similar related question to that was we've often been asked. So we, we do a mix of uh, Java and .NET and, and Ruby projects throughout the world and with other things mixed in as well. And people have often asked us, do you have a standard kind of Java project starter kit or template or, you know, some set of assets that we always start with? And we've actually tried in the past to kind of come up with something like that. And we always failed because we always find that the peculiarities of the individual project outweighs any kind of ability to make a, any kind of generic template or anything like that, that it would be so customized that before long, you know, you're, you're fighting it more than you're benefiting from it. We do a lot more learning, I think, in active development than we do in training classes anyway. Absolutely. Uh, would, yeah. So would you be reluctant to, like, put a Java developer on a Scala project? No, but I would make sure that I would pair them up with an experienced Scala developer and not expect them to be super productive in that environment for a while until they got their feet wet. We're also big worldwide, all of our projects, we do pair programming all the time. So that's by far the most effective way to uh, uh, to get people up to speed on something is to pair them with someone who's, who's already uh, knows that stack. Because you see realistic problems in a realistic setting and you see how someone who's experienced in that space solves a problem in a realistic setting, there's no better way to pick up something than that, I don't think. I'm kind of curious, Neil, um, you discussed the sort of financial portfolio metaphor earlier. One of the things that I think goes along with that is like when you're younger, you want to be more diverse and take more chances with your portfolio. And as you get older, you want the stability and predictability of sort of stable, predictable stocks. Um, how does that translate into planning your career? I think that's a natural kind of proclivity. I was actually chatting with a, a well-known technologist. I won't, I won't give his name away, but it's somewhat a well-known book author. And we were chatting about when we were both younger, we used to love to play with stereo stuff, you know, wire them together and, you know, individual components and really geek out about that. And we find that once we've gotten older, we don't care anything about that. We just want, you know, really good sound to come out. We don't really care about how all the, you know, moving parts work. And he was kind of lamenting that, but we kind of reached the conclusion that, well, part of what we've lost in the kind of insatiable curiosity for everything we touch is that we now have a much kind of deeper concentration ability on deeper, more complex subjects. I think that's the natural kind of trade-off. I think that's the natural career path that you, do, you see developers that move up through developer and then become tech lead and then eventually become an architect. Uh, you're looking at bigger, more complex, more nuanced kind of problems that are deeper in and of themselves. And so I think you can afford to be a little deeper and less broad as you build up more expertise and get more experience in things. And I think that reflects that. 
So you think that specialization versus generalization is uh, is sort of an inevitable career path? I think it is. We're trying to fight it because we have a saying within ThoughtWorks that a specialization is for insects, and, and we really like generalists. Even saying that and, and really feeling that to our core, we now have specialized roles within ThoughtWorks for user experience designers and data scientists. And it's just like medicine. You know, back in the Civil War, there were doctors. And mostly what they had were like saws and whiskey. Uh, that was about as good as medicine got. But then as the technology improved, as we learned way more about medicine, you see this really, really intense branching and specialization. I think that's inevitable in the software world. It's way too complex for anybody to hold big chunks of it in their head, particularly at the rate of change that's happening in all the different branches of software development. So I think it's inevitable that some specialization is going to happen. We try to be kind of as generalist as we can and then specialize in niches. Uh, and the way that we kind of mitigate the, the negative side effects of having too many specialists running around is we pair all those specialists up with interested generalists so that they learn more about what's going on. So that's another good mechanism for spreading specialist knowledge around a project is uh, pair them up with someone who's interested in, in soaking up some of that knowledge. I read some business article the other day that recommended repotting yourself once you've been at the top of a career path for long enough. Do you ever have specialists that like move to another specialty to increase the number of niches they know? Oh, yeah. We've got uh, several people within ThoughtWorks. Uh, I know at least one guy, uh, Patrick Sarnicky is his name. I think he's worked every role at ThoughtWorks, every billable role at ThoughtWorks. He actually started in the networking. I think he actually started as like an, an intern when he was in university. And then came aboard as like a networking and a sysops guy and then kind of moved to DevOps and then moved and became a developer. And he did that for a while, became a really, really terrific developer and then moved into, became an iteration manager for while. I think he's like running our associate consultant program now within ThoughtWorks. So he's definitely repotted himself over and over and over again uh, within the company. I think that's a great idea. And, and we see people do that all the time. People who move from being a QA to a business analyst or, you know, within technical roles on projects. We actually try to encourage that on projects. We identify people by the role that they have on project, which is separate from the grade that they have within the company, which is how salaries and that kind of things are based. So, you know, if you're a business analyst, but you're just really curious about what the role of iteration manager looks like, you know, there's nothing uh, we would try to encourage you to see if you want to play that role at least temporarily on a project, just to see if it's something that you like better. Switching from something you know well into something that you're just learning can be scary, but it makes you so much more valuable later on to know both things. Oh, yeah. The broader you are, when anything you learn that's technology-related, there's a synergistic effect that I think is really amazing that, you know, people say that learning a new programming language makes you better in the programming language you spend your day job in. And I think that's true pretty much in anything in the technology world. It's, it, it's all so intertwined in, in sometimes unexpected ways that you know, anything you learn, it's, it's amazing how you end up accidentally applying that. And it seems like, and this is just a coincidental thing, but it seems like when you learn something new, it seems like you end up applying it within the, the first couple of weeks, learning some new cool thing. That's so true. So, Neil, what are you excited about right now? 
The biggest thing that I'm really geeked about, most of my consulting work right now is in the intersection of software architecture and kind of the engineering practices and continuous delivery. So I'm doing a lot of work in software architecture space right now. I think that's the most interesting part of software anyway. A lot of the process stuff in Agile, we've kind of gotten resolved. I mean, we know now how to you know put projects together and how to estimate projects and, and that sort of stuff. But there's still a lot of really interesting stuff in the getting better at the engineering practices of building software. Software, and then particularly the architectural impacts. I think it's fascinating that we've seen kind of a revolution in architecture over the last four or five years as people have started realizing that operations and architecture can't be separated, that architecture is really an abstraction until it's operationalized. And so that's really what the, the kind of DevOps movement and then all the interest in microservice architectures now is really this this realization that you have to pay attention to what it looks like at runtime and not only how to deploy an architecture, but how do you evolve an architecture without breaking everything. So I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in that space. Did you just say that microservices is the arch ops of no. the combination of architecture and operations? No. Caring that, about each other? Okay. That was probably Skype uh, doing that to me. I said it's the inter- <laughs> I said it was the intersection of, I, I call microservices the first post-DevOps revolution architecture. It's the first architecture that fully kind of embraces all the operational concerns and makes it a moving part in the architecture, makes it a first-class citizen in the architecture, which is why, you know, one of the biggest things that we've always feared in architecture was change because change is so expensive. Well, change is built into the kind of microservice architecture idea, but so change is much less expensive in that world. So I think that's fascinating. So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. And then I'm also fascinated by functional programming in general. My, my last book was called uh, Functional Thinking, and uh, in particular, Closure. I think Closure is a beautiful, elegant thing. It's been my favorite language since I learned uh, Ruby. Those are my two favorite languages to get things done in now is Ruby and Closure. Neil, you said one other thing that I know this, this was not Skype mangling something. <laughs> you actually said, we know how to estimate. Uh-huh. Can you teach me? Because I, I never thought that was actually possible. Oh, yeah. We do this all the time on projects. I mean, this is I mean, it's an engineering practice. I mean, certainly there are constraints on it, but, you know, estimation is something that you can get pretty good at if, if you do it enough. And it, it is an estimate, so I'm not saying that we're deadly accurate on these. And you know, I realize there's an entire movement in software, the no estimates movement in software, which I'm a big fan of because all an estimate really is. So really, I mean, I've been an advocate of this a long time. All an estimate really is is they're trying to hold you down to you're going to get this set of things done by this date. But agile software development kind of invalidates that because we're saying, well, you can change your mind at any point along the way about the set of features you want by whatever date you want. So what you're really buying when you buy software is a subscription to agile software development where you get to change your mind anytime you want. That's a much better perspective on software, but that's a really hard thing to do for people who have budgets and need to do resource planning and all that sort of stuff. So we, we do estimation. I mean, this is a pretty well-known practice in the Agile world. Uh, and we don't do anything special or magical beyond kind of the stuff that Mike Cohn talks about and users uh, applied or user stories applied or anything like that. But we also give confidence levels for estimates. And we tell people, you know, if you change the scope of things after we've estimated, we have to re-estimate. You know, it's try to be realistic about it. Okay. Thanks. All right. Is there anything else that we should know about the technology radar? I think the overall concept is pretty straightforward once you kind of see it. Yep. But so at if, the same time, sometimes it's a little daunting to try and put one together. 
Yep. So if you do want to put one together, so when we do this for companies, uh, we tend to do this just captured in a spreadsheet or something very lightweight like that. If you do actually want to put the visualization together, all of the hard work has been done for you. So there is a project on GitHub that was created by one of my now ex-colleagues called, uh, his name is uh, Brett Dargan, and his GitHub account is B. D-A-R-G-A-N, that's B. Dargan, and he has a project called Tech Radar. So it's github.com slash B. Dargan slash Tech Radar. And what he has done is created this little chunk of code that you supply a JSON data structure, and it will draw this radar visualization for you on an HTML5 canvas. So if you want to create the visualization for this, the hard work for that is already done. You fill in the JSON data structure, and then it draws all that stuff for you. Uh, I think our interactive radar is actually a, f a fork from a while back of this kind of uh, visualization thing. The only tricky thing about uh, Brett's tech radar thing on GitHub is that when we put blips on our radar, we're not super obsessed about the exact placement within the ring. So if something is a millimeter closer to something else, we're not trying to make some sort of editorial comment about that. But Brett did want to give the ability for really precise placement within rings. And so the JSON data structure you fill in, uh, you have to use polar coordinates, which gives you precise placement of the blip within the ring. It's a little bit of a yak shave to convert things to polar coordinates to put them in the radar. But once you've done that, then uh, things show up as you expect them to. So I would encourage you, if you are going to do this exercise, capture the results of this exercise just so that you can refer to it the next time you do this exercise. I think this is not a bad idea to do this on a semi-regular basis. I tend to go through kind of an informal version of this every December for myself to kind of think about what am I spending my kind of technological research budget on now and is that am I using that wisely and is there something I should put in place and and reprioritize things and so it's a good time to kind of take a step back from your career decisions and look around as if a if you were a third party observer and say okay if I were giving myself advice about my career what advice would I give at this point going through this radar exercise is a nice kind of formal reminder that you should do that on a regular basis this is also something that we encourage people to do for their company. So this is on my uh, website, neil4.com. There's a Build Your Own Technology blog there. It's mostly focused on doing this for uh, your own company uh, as a group exercise for your company, as a way of kind of vetting the technology choices. It's a way of for the people who touch technology every day to give feedback to the people who make decisions about technology. So putting a radar together is kind of the company snapshot of what we think about technologies that we're using and what technologies we want to pursue going forward versus the one we want to spend less time on. And so uh, that's a, another way that we suggest people can use this radar metaphor. All right. Well, thanks for uh, discussing this with us, Neil. I'm, I'm hoping that a few people will go out there and do some awesome stuff with their own tech radars. Why don't we go ahead and do the picks? Bob, do you want to start us off with picks? I only have one pick today. Uh, my pick is a 2011 BBC documentary series called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. It's a three-part series. Uh, each part is, I think, about an hour and a half long. And it is basically about how computers have been ruining us. <laughs> each one picks an example of people getting really excited about computers and cybernetics and software systems and then 
sort of trying to reflect those systems back into the world or assert that the world is going to change and become new and special as a result of these systems and then just really royally mucking things up instead. Like the first example has to do with the uh, Alan Greenspan and the 2008 economic collapse just ideas that went into that. Another episode has to do with the idea, the sort of 60s and 70s ideas about cybernetics and ecology and how people were basically thinking of thinking that, you know, the world could function like distributed systems that self-organize and and self-balance. And it turns out that uh, even natural ecology itself doesn't actually self-balance that well. It's hard to sum up these into a short description, but they're very, very thought provoking. And uh, they've definitely given me a lot of food for thought about when we work with software, we don't just reflect the world into the software. We also start to reflect the software into the world around us. And that can be very dangerous if we're not careful. That's it for me. All right. Coraline, what are your picks? Okay. Uh, my first pick is um, a website called eulersprint.org. Basically, you sign up to compete in a team of four to solve problems from Project Euler, and you get to use your preferred programming language. It is basically, you can um, pick your level, beginning, intermediate, or experienced, and find problems that are at your level and people to team up with. It's a great way to level up and also a great excuse for some pair programming with people you haven't worked with before. My second pick is actually a card game, and this has become a favorite of mine at conferences. Um, it's called Gloom. And in the Gloom card game, you're in control of a family of misfits. And the goal of the game is to make your family suffer the, the greatest tragedies before moving on to death while simultaneously making good things happen to your opponent's players and piling on the positive points on them. So you have cards like Pursued by Poodles or Marooned on the Moors or, you know, Happily Married that you're playing. Um, it's a really interesting mechanic. It lends itself really well to storytelling. And uh, it's just, it's a great game to play with uh, with a group of friends. So that's it. Awesome. What are your picks, Jessica? All right, I have two picks. The first one is a music pick. The Bad Plus. It's a jazz group, and their new album, Inevitable Western, is excellent. A little bit dissonant, very interesting. My second pick is a tool that we use at work a lot. It's Teammate. If you ever use Tmux, then... This is basically Tmux that's really easy to share with someone else on another computer without having to create a login and SSH directly into that computer. It's great for remote pairing when all you need to share is a text editor because that's super fast. So you can Google it, teammate. It's pretty useful. The end. Awesome. I think I picked what I want to pick this week last week. So I'm just going to pick a couple of things. that they, I know they've been picked on the show before, but I'm just really liking them. Uh, the first one is Screen Hero. I understand that they just recently got purchased by Slack, which is another pick of mine. So Screen Hero is its just a screen sharing option that you have out there, except that it, it's interactive. In other words, I can I can click and type on your machine, and you can click and type on mine. And the pricing is incredibly low, but the quality is is pretty decent. So I'm going to pick them, and I'm also going to pick Slack. And Slack is just an awesome chat option if you're looking for a way for your team to communicate. Neil, what are your picks? Uh, I'll give you three in decreasing level of uh, technical interest. Uh, The first one is this really awesome site that a bunch of my colleagues posted up on Heroku called 
devopsbookmarks.com, all one word, devopsbookmarks.com. What they're trying to do is take the enormous explosion of DevOps tools like provisioning and service discovery and all those things and create a live site so you can go in and filter. So let's say I'm only on the, the Linux ecosystem. You can filter them by Linux and see the tools that are available to do a particular thing like aug aggregation. So it's a lot of really good, kind of a cool live site that let you do some comparisons around those common categories that have so much uh, stuff happening right now. The other thing I can point people to is I just published a blog today that showed up on the uh, the O'Reilly Radar site called Elvis Has Left the Ivory Tower about some current uh, perspectives on software architecture, uh, some of the stuff I was just talking about, but a little more uh, a cohesive version of that. If you do a search for Elvis Has Left the Ivory Tower, you should be able to find that on O'Reilly's site. And finally, the last thing, um, I've got a, an ambitious goal to read uh, 50 books this year, which is about a book a week. And I'm one of the things I'm reading through that I'm really thoroughly enjoying is a science fiction series from uh, uh, an author who just died recently, Ian M. Banks, called The Culture Series. It's this uh, a shared world kind of uh, series, this culture of a post-scarcity civilization. And uh, particularly the book Use of Weapons is really cool because it tells two stories, one front to back and the other back to front, and they kind of meet in the middle. So it's sort of like the movie Memento, but in book form. And he manages to write it in such a way so that the story that's traveling backwards still has a really interesting climax. So a really, really interestingly well-written book called Use of Weapons in the uh, Ian and Banks culture series. All right. Well, thanks again for coming and talking to us. I, I I find this topic just fascinating and um, I'm hoping that we can really help some folks prioritize the things that they're going to learn and the things that they're going to uh, adopt in their businesses and in their careers. Yep. I do too. Um, like I say, I love this topic too. I, I talk about it at conferences. So the more people I can get in, interested in this, uh, the happier I am. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is there a good way for people to get a hold of you if they have questions or anything like that? Yep, my website, uh, neilford.com, has my uh, email address on it. I'm also at ThoughtWorks. I'm just nford.thoughtworks.com. And I'm on uh, Twitter, N-E-A-L, the number 4D, which is the elite version of my name. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got, so we'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Ruby and JavaScript go together like peanut butter and jelly. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and Ruby Rogues and are up on the latest tools and tricks you'll need to write great JavaScript. He covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everyone. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited and can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at rubyrogues.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. 
You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.